It's good to be with you again this evening. Uh, If you did not receive one of the uh, rubber-banded packets of of these little books, would you please raise your hand, and uh, we've got someone in the back that'll make sure you get one. We've got a couple. Elijah, there should be three of these little booklets, and the format will look familiar to you. Keep your hand up, and these guys will make sure you get... Make sure you get one. Aaron, there's some on the wall. Look in the rack on the wall. Okay, we got one more down here at the front, and we've got one all the way over here on the right, my right. One more. Two more. Okay, thank you guys. You know, sometimes in our evangelism, we come upon a situation in which we talk to a person who doesn't believe that God exists, or doesn't believe that the scripture is inspired of God, or maybe doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, or maybe they're just not sure. Maybe they have some questions about those uh, particular subjects. Those questions are incredibly important, and the question is, how are we going to handle those kinds of questions? How are we going to deal with a situation like that? We've got to recognize, first of all, that it is important that we do address the questions to be sure. Realize that if God does not exist, then life has no meaning. And according to evolutionary theory, that means that we're here simply as the result of millions of years of chance and chemical processes And so our existence must be explained solely and entirely by physical means. We have no soul, no spirit, no real purpose, no destiny. But if God does exist, then that means life does have profound meaning. It means that we have a soul and a spirit and a meaningful purpose in life and a responsibility to an all-powerful supreme being who has fashioned us in his image. So the booklet that you have in your hand, or the packet of booklets that you have in your hands, is called Believe the Bible. This is written by uh, Brother Rob Whitaker, and it is intended to be a companion to the three booklet uh, series, uh, a set of material written by Bobby Bates a long time ago that we worked our way through, I guess a year or so ago now, in our Bible class, 
that helps as we try to study God's Word with someone. But this series of booklets is designed to deal with the questions of the existence of God and the inspiration of the Bible and the deity of Jesus. And so we want to take an opportunity, since we have these now, to, to go through them and to familiarize ourselves with them. And tonight we're going to be saying a few things about the first of the three books. It's the golden uh, covered book uh, that is called The Affirmation of God. We don't have the time, unfortunately, to be able to go through all of the pages and look at all of the questions like we did when we uh, looked at the Bobby Bates material in Bible class. So what I'd like for us to do tonight is I'd like for us to just look generally at the major arguments and points that are made in this book and talk a little bit and familiarize ourselves a little bit with those arguments. And hopefully that will help us to be able to understand what's going on in the book just a little bit better. So this first book has to do, as I said, with the existence of God. Let's talk about that a little bit this evening. We should recognize, first of all, that we can know that God exists. There are three ways of viewing God. They are, if you've probably heard them, atheism, agnosticism, and then, of course, theism. Let's talk about atheism. Consider atheism just for a moment. You should recognize that, really, atheism is a logical impossibility. And the reason why is because the atheist claims to know that God does not exist. The problem with the claim of knowing that God exists, the problem with trying to establish his non-existence as an absolute and objective truth, is that to be able to establish that truth, a person would have to know every fact that there is to know in the universe because the one fact that you may not know would be the fact of God's existence. But if you know every fact that there is to know in the universe, then that by, by its very nature makes you, by definition, God. So it's a logical impossibility to claim to be truly an atheist. What about an agnostic? An agnostic claims to not be sure, basically, that God exists. They're just not sure that it can be proven, just not sure, or maybe don't want to be sure that God exists. But I want to suggest to you that agnosticism is also a logically contradictory position. And here's the reason why. Because the agnostic basically says it is impossible to know the fact of God's existence, but the claim that you cannot know the fact of God's existence is self-contradictory because if you say that you can't know facts and then you make a factual claim, you've, well, contradicted your own, your own position. So then that, of course, leaves theism, which is the belief in God. It's the only rational and logical belief system in regard to God's existence. The word theism or the idea of theism simply means that a person believes that God exists or claims to believe that God exists. And the Bible actually, uh, Scripture actually suggests that we can know that God exists. And the reason why we can know it is because God has revealed himself. There are two ways that Scripture tells us that God has revealed himself. There is what we would call the general revelation of God in nature. We read about it in Psalm 19, for example. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork. 
Romans chapter 1, verses 19 to 21, where the Apostle Paul talks about the Gentiles being without excuse because the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen in the creation, even his eternal power and Godhead. So the idea is that when we look at the created order, we can reason from creation to the existence of a creator. That's what we call general revelation. But there's also special revelation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us about the will of God and how the Holy Spirit reveals what's in the will of God or reveals the mind of God. And general revelation and special revelation go together kind of like this. You look at a tree and you consider it and you consider everything, how it's designed and you reason to the fact that there must be a creator. But just looking at the tree and a leaf falling off the tree, that that doesn't tell you anything about who the creator is. That doesn't tell you anything about what he expects or what his will is. So that's where special revelation comes in. And that refers to the Bible. That would be the second lesson in the series of three. Tonight we're interested not in special revelation, we're interested in general revelation. What is it, generally speaking, in the created world that we can perceive and that we can reason about that will help us arrive at the proper conclusion that God does indeed exist? Well, in this book that Brother Whitaker has put together, there are basically three arguments that he addresses. The first argument is what is called an argument, uh, the cosmological argument rather, which is an argument based on the law of cause and effect. Let's talk about the law of cause and effect for a moment. And if you want to note some, uh, some things in the book, you could look at page 3. This is where he begins to talk about this law on page 3. He turns our attention to Hebrews chapter 3 and verse number 4, which says, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Now, the law of cause and effect is stated in this way, that every material effect must have an adequate antecedent cause. Now, pay close attention to that definition because the preciseness of the language is important. Every material effect must have an adequate antecedent cause. Now, the reason why we say material effect is because sometimes a person will say, all right, I'll play this game. Every effect has to have an adequate antecedent cause. God is an effect, so then who is his cause? You see, that's why we're talking about every material effect, because God is spirit, John 4, 24. He is not material. So every material effect must have an adequate cause. That means it has to be big enough. The truck is not going to be run off the road because a fly hit the windshield. The fly is not adequate. It's not big enough. So every material effect must have an adequate antecedent cause, which means the, the a cause has to come before the effect. So in Hebrews 3 and verse 4, every house is built by someone. There's a house, it exists, it's been built. How did it come to exist? That's the question. And the logical implication is that someone with a higher intelligence must have built it. So now let's talk a little bit more in detail about the cosmological argument, this argument that's based on the law of cause and effect. First of all, 
This, here's a question that we ought to consider. Why is there something rather than nothing? In other words, why does something exist instead of nothing at all? Now, this question is important because it has to do with contingency, and it has to do with something that's called necessary being. You see, you can't take something that exists and simply regress infinitely from that thing. Uh, let me illustrate. Every tree produces seed, and that seed then produces another tree, which produces seed, which produces another tree, which produces seed, which then produces another tree. And you see, this cycle continues to go round and round. Incidentally, you can read about that in Genesis chapter 1, because you remember that the Bible says that, that God made every... Uh, every uh, seed-yielding tree, and God says that the, the trees, the fruit rather, and the seeds that they are to produce after their own what? After their own kind. That's the idea. The tree yields seed, which makes a tree, which makes seed, which makes a tree, and it goes on, it goes over and over again, but look, there had to have been a first tree. That's the idea. If there's something here, then uh, that means that something must have always existed because you can't get something from nothing. So, as we talk about contingency and as we talk about necessary being, what we realize is that everything that exists depends upon something else's existence. So if something exists right now, then something has always existed because something cannot come from nothing. If that were the case, then the law of cause and effect would be no law at all. So, therefore, it must be the case then that a being exists whose existence is not dependent upon any other being. In other words, there has to be an adequate antecedent cause. To simplify this, that means that there must be a God. Because you can't have trees that go on infinitely, and you can't have people that go on infinitely. There has to be some being that is outside of the tree, and some being that is outside of the, of the human being to start the tree, to produce the first tree, and to make or to produce the first human being. We call that a sufficient cause, a supreme being. That's God. So the universe is here, and there are only three possible explanations for it. Either it's eternal, or it created itself, or it was created by the necessary being who is God. Well, it's not eternal because modern science denies an eternal universe. In fact, it recognizes that the universe is expanding, which implies that it had a beginning. It didn't create itself because that's a violation of the necessary being argument. And uh, as Julie Andrews said, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So that means that the only option that's left is necessary being. The only thing that's left is that there is a God, there is a supreme being called God who exists outside of time and outside of this created order, and he is the one who is responsible for bringing the created order into being, into existence. This is the law of cause and effect. All right, here's the second one. Look at, um, in this book, if you're following along, look at page number six. On page number six, the book begins to talk about design. The argument from design is referred to as the teleological argument, and it basically just means that design demands a designer. So, to the unbiased eye, there's no doubt that our universe was intricately and beautifully designed. 
A person by the name of David Noble, in his book, Understanding the Times, wrote, Science is relearning an old lesson. The more we uncover details about the universe and living organisms, the more we discover design. But what's more than that is that some would suggest that the design that we see in nature around us, it, it happened by chance. It happened through evolutionary, uh, through, uh, evolutionary processes over a time period of millions, maybe billions of years. But here's a quotation from someone who says the problem with this alternative is that the odds against it are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. And he'll go on to say that for a person to just say that the design that we see in the universe happened by chance, if they say that, what that means is that they really have no conception of the fantastic precision of the fine-tuning that is required for life. So therefore, the only logical explanation is that when we have design, that means we have to have a designer. Albert Einstein said, The harmony of natural law reveals an intelligence of such superiority that compared with it, all the systematic thinking and acting of human beings is an utterly insignificant reflection. We find passages in God's word, incidentally, that speak about this argument, this teleological argument, the argument from design. We mentioned already Psalm 19 verse 1 and Romans 1 and verse 20. Both of those passages call us to look to the created order and reason from the design and creation to the existence of a creator. But here's another passage that maybe we don't think about so often. We studied it a couple of Sunday nights ago. Do you remember Psalm 139 verses 13 to 16? Remember as David in that passage talks about the omnipotence of God, that is his unlimited power, the thing that he uses to illustrate that power is the creation and the formation of human life inside the mother's womb. Remember, he talks about being skillfully and wonderfully made, and he uses language, he uses wording that has to do with being carefully woven and crafted together inside the womb of a mother. And he says, this is a great, if not one of the greatest examples, illustrations of the awesome power of God, human life and the human body. Here's another case in point. Think about your skin. The human skin is composed of 19 million cells, 625 sweat glands, 90 oil glands, uh, 19 feet of blood vessels, and 19,000 Sensory, uh, sensory cells, all of that is found in one square inch of your skin. The skin acts like a chemical processing plant, just one of the things that it does for the entire body. So when you're outside, the skin absorbs ultraviolet rays from the sun and then it uses uh, them to convert chemicals into vitamin D and vitamin D is important to our body because it helps stimulate the absorption of calcium. And without calcium, our bones will go th grow thin and brittle and eventually will lead to various skeletal diseases. So God has created our body in a finely tuned way. Uh, and when we just look at the different parts of our body and the different parts of this universe, there's no question that we can reason to the fact that it had a designer. That's the basic idea of the um, teleological argument. Now look at verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 8. Look at page 8. 
On page 8, the book begins to talk about the moral argument, the question of morality. The moral argument, very succinctly stated, goes something like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. But objective moral values do exist, and so therefore, God exists. Now, the classic, um, the classic illustration of this, and it's mentioned in this book, is, of course, Hitler and Nazi Germany during World War II. There isn't anyone who's reasonable and sane who would say that what Hitler and the Germans did was moral. Reasonable, sane people recognize that what they did was wrong, that what they did was immoral. But now the question is, based on what? You see, there are a number of different worldviews that exist in our world. You remember we talked about this a little while back and a little bit more about it coming up in a month or so. There is uh, cultural relativism, which basically means that moral truth is relative to various cultures and times and places. There is secularism, which uh, reasons that moral truth or right and wrong is determined based purely upon a natural basis that humans, people, they get to determine what's right and wrong. There is Marxism, which says that what's right is determined by what uh, pushes society onward in this climb to do away with things like capitalism and so on. There is postmodernism, which basically denies that there are any absolutes whatsoever. Now, if you try to take any one of those worldviews and any one of those ways of determining moral truth and then say what Hitler and Nazi Germany did was wrong, you will, you will contradict yourself. Because cultural relativism says that right is determined by the culture. Well, their culture said it's right. Secularism will say that right is determined by people. Well, they're people and they said it was right. Marxism will say that right is determined by what brings society to a desired place or a desired goal. And they would say that we were working to promote a society that was ideal in our eyes. Postmodernism says there's really no absolutes at all, so you don't have the right to say that what one person or one group of people do is right or wrong because what's right for me may not be right for you. That's how postmodernism works. So if we're going to have an objective standard of morality, which all people recognize exists, and of course more could be said to prove that point, but this is just the general idea. If objective morality exists, and it does, then the only way that that can be possible is if there's a moral law giver. And that, of course, is God. And that'll be spelled out in the last three or four pages this book. So we have three basic arguments for proving the existence of God that this book will cover. There's the law of cause and effect. It simply says that every material effect must have an adequate antecedent cause. The universe is here. It is obviously an effect. So there has to be a cause that is bigger than the universe and that came before the universe that is outside of the universe that would have brought the universe into being. Then there's the argument for, from design, the teleological argument. Every uh, design demands a designer. 
So your iPhone has been designed. Somebody had to design it. Your watch, your car, your house, all of those things show the marks of design, and therefore someone had to design them. But the universe and the human body, it shows design. There must have been a designer. And then finally, there is the moral argument. Moral truth, objective moral values exist. Murder is wrong objectively throughout the world, throughout the the universe, if you will, just as one example. So if objective moral values exist, then that must mean that there is a lawgiver, a moral lawgiver who exists and has given these values that are the same for all people at all times and in all places. And that, friends, will reason us back to God. So that, in a nutshell, is what this first book covers, the existence of God. And as you read through this book and look at the different questions and sit down and work to answer them, you'll be able perhaps to fill in some blanks that that may be left from our brief time of going over some of these things this evening. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now, and it may be that there's someone here that has a need to respond, perhaps to obey the gospel this evening, to become a child of God. We stand ready and willing to help you in doing that. Maybe you are a Christian and there's something in your life that's amiss. Maybe you'd like for us to pray for you, to pray with you, to give you some encouragement. If you have any need whatsoever, then we invite you to come and let it be known while we stand and sing the invitation song together.